Welcome to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. My name is Kimberly Simpkins, and this show is about my family's amazing journey of navigating mental illness and marriage and much more. Psalm 66:12 says, You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. My goal is to share our story of the many challenges our family has experienced while living in the shadow of my husband's bipolar 1 diagnosis, and how we were miraculously brought to a place of safety by Jesus' mighty hand. I hope to encourage those who are walking alongside a spouse or partner with mental illness while also growing in faith and devotion to the Lord. Even if you're not a person of faith, I think you will still be encouraged by our story, especially if you or a loved one struggle with mental illness. Special thank you to my husband, Scott, for his support and permission to share the story as well as allowing me to use one of his original compositions performed by yours truly on violin and a wonderful colleague on piano. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This episode is part two of the episode that I started last week where Scott shares with me the rest of the bombshell that started to fall back in 2005 in December. After I hear him out and begin putting all of the pieces together, things really start to break down, forcing us to move and start over from scratch, eventually leading to Scott leaving for the first time. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention that I'm launching bonus content this week. It'll almost be like another podcast, except I'll get deeper into some of the more difficult parts of our story, including sharing what it was that Scott allegedly remembered and its impact on our family. I want to discuss things like trauma, spiritual warfare, and how all that affects our understanding and treatment of mental illness. Also, how do you distinguish between a delusion and reality? How did I know if what Scott shared was true or part of the illness? Could demons be causing some of his issues? This content will require a subscription, and along with it, I hope to spark dialogue, conversation, and community around these issues and more. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now on to today's episode. If you haven't listened to the previous three episodes, now is a good time so you can get a good background of events leading up to this episode. Here's the timeline of events as they unfolded so far. December 2005 started with flashbacks to specific images Scott saw in his mind from his childhood of trauma involving his parents. I couldn't believe my ears. Early February 2006, he shared with me something else, again involving his parents, so outrageous that I really thought it was way out there. It was completely different from what he shared with me in December, but no less outrageous. But this time, his own child was involved, and I honored his wishes to not put her in the presence of his parents. So now, it's the middle of February 2006. Once again, Scott's in distress. Once again, he's telling me that all is not what it seems to be in his family with his parents, and that he was subject to truly horrific abuse as a child at their hands. The third time is a charm, as they say, and this time I felt a firm tug in my spirit that I needed to listen to him. So, after Jasmine was asleep for the night, Scott chatted away. Once again, let me interject here that for details on exactly what he said happened to him, you can subscribe to my premium content where you'll get the tea. But it was bad. It wasn't just bad, 
it was almost beyond comprehension. By this time, Scott was back on medication and his mood was pretty stable. I had no reason to believe that he was insincere. In fact, he seemed very wounded, extremely wounded, betrayed, dismayed, and yet things were making sense to him. For example, we used to drive around town a lot and he used to like to ride around his old neighborhood and he would look at the house that he grew up in the first 17 years of his life. He would just drive there, stop the car, and stare at the house. One time he said, I want to buy that house. I was thinking to myself, I don't want to live in this neighborhood. It was full of trees, so it was dark, and for some odd reason, I just didn't like being there. Scott's attachment to that house was weird. But, in light of all these images and memories and flashbacks, Scott finally figured out why he was so drawn to that house. Subconsciously, he was trying to figure out what happened there. He was trying to piece together a puzzle, and now he had some answers. Everything that he told me had happened to him had happened in that house. Well, I took in everything that Scott told me. Some of it was disjointed, but most of it was graphic, surreal, and, and pretty horrific. And yet, strangely, as horrible as it was, it was also kind of liberating. We finally figured out what it was that had been haunting Scott all this time, or so we thought. That something was not bipolar disorder, but a dark shadow that seemed to follow him. Now it made sense. Perfect sense. But I wasn't satisfied. Not that I didn't believe Scott, but I just needed more information. So I went to my computer and I started Googling. I Googled some of the words that Scott used to describe the things that he had experienced. Was this even really a thing? Well, it was a thing. There was even a name for this particular kind of abuse. Scott never used the formal name. He was just describing to me certain images and incidents. Everything began making sense. Even his parents' strange beliefs made sense. As I was trying to sort through what was maybe delusion and what was real traumatic memory, based on my research, it wasn't entirely out of the question that everything Scott was telling me could indeed be true. I still wasn't satisfied. I started researching repressed memories. Is it even possible for a grown adult to repress childhood trauma and it suddenly come up later? I'd heard of that happening, but I wasn't sure if it was really a thing. Well, it was a thing. There are a couple of camps about this belief, though. There was something called false memory syndrome, where people's therapists allegedly planted memories into their clients or somehow pulled these fake memories out of people. Scott wasn't in therapy. Whatever he was dealing with seemed to come out of nowhere. And not only that, but it came out in the context of a serious mental illness. I needed to know if what he was saying was real or sickness. I did learn that repeated trauma over time that happens in childhood tends to be suppressed, while a one-time event, like say an accident or a natural disaster, is more easily recalled. Repressing the memory is a defense mechanism that helps the child survive, but in adulthood, that trauma manifests in all kinds of behaviors and issues, such as addiction, mental illness, relationship problems, etc. Scott didn't have any addictions, and we didn't seem to have trouble with our relationship, when he was well, of course, but he hit the target on the mental illness. My research led me to something called dissociative disorder and all manner of other kinds of data, information, psychology, psychiatric, psychiatric conditions, etc., etc. Basically, I tumbled headfirst down a rabbit hole of information. When I finally came up for air, a month had gone by. 
As I researched, Scott talked. He talked and talked and talked. I told him that maybe he should talk to someone like a professional. He didn't want to. He was raw and distrustful. He'd come to terms with the fact that he was betrayed by his own parents and family. He wasn't about to put his trust in some stranger. Paranoid? Maybe. Wounded? Definitely. The only person he trusted was me. I believed Scott. I tried to get his family off the hook at the expense of labeling my own husband a lunatic. It was better for him to be having a psychotic break and be delusional than for what he was saying to be true. I tried to give them the benefit of the doubt, but there was just way too many things, way too much circumstantial evidence that was stacking up against them. It was not looking good for them. It was hard because these were my child's grandparents. I thought I had a pretty decent relationship with them, but it always felt a little fragile to me. Like, I better keep the peace because they could turn on me on a dime. But the more Scott talked, the more I dug into all of the information, the more I looked at his parents and their beliefs, the more I took it all in, the more guilty they started to look. The problem was, I wasn't equipped to deal with what Scott was telling me. I reached out for help, understanding and clarity to some professionals and others with experience, and there were a few people that validated what Scott was telling me, but they said, we can help him, but we would have to hear from him. That just was not happening. Finally, after about a month of immersing myself into this whole situation and trying to sort it all out, I had to make a decision, especially since Scott's family was calling all of our phones. Scott refused to answer them. For a while, I answered them and told them everything was fine, anything to try to keep them satisfied and away from us. They weren't the type of people to just pop over uninvited. In fact, as I thought about it, I realized that in the entire six years of our marriage, they never came to our house. We always went to their house. So anyway, eventually, I stopped answering the phone too. Here was my reasoning. Whatever was going on, this was between Scott and his parents and family. I did not want to get in the middle of it and act as some kind of mediator, especially to tell them that their son thought that they were basically monsters. Scott refused to talk to them. I figured, well, if they don't hear from us at all, then perhaps someone out of the five family members that lived in town would physically come to our house and see about us, and then Scott would be forced to face them and deal with all of this himself. I mean, if I suddenly stopped hearing from my mentally ill son and his wife and small child, especially after recently he went through a, an episode, I would certainly want to know what's up. They knew where he worked. He was back at work at this point. They knew where we lived. I figured sooner or later, Scott couldn't keep hiding from them. But they never showed up. His mother in Tennessee called my mother in North Carolina to ask her if she had heard from us. I had been talking to my mother regularly, even during all of this. So my mother said, they're fine. I guess that was enough for my mother-in-law because she never came over to see for herself. Neither did anyone else in Scott's family. Now remember, the previous month, my mother and sister didn't like the way I'd sounded on the phone, and they came from two different states to look me in the eye and make sure that I was okay. But no one in Scott's family could drive a few miles and knock on his door and ask if he was okay, or at the very least have the police or the landlord come and do a welfare check. I couldn't understand that behavior, and it certainly wasn't helping their case any. Meanwhile, all this time we were living life as best as we could. 
Scott was still taking his medication, but sometime in April, he began to reason to himself. If all this trauma was his real problem, then why would he need to take all this medication? I mean, it made sense, right? The medication sometimes seemed to work against him. Maybe because he didn't need it. Maybe what he needed was to just deal with the trauma. So again, he stopped taking the medication. Cold turkey. Just like that. By this time, he had been on, off, and on again in the space of just a few months. Now, he was about to go off again. Off of hardcore psychiatric drugs. Cold turkey. Big mistake. Huge mistake. One of several mistakes we made along the way, I'm sad to say. Another huge mistake we made at this time was trying to deal with all of this alone. We literally had no one walking with us through this. We were attending church at the time and our pastor was the pastor who married us. The only thing I got from him was, we're here for you and Jasmine if you need us. Okay, but what about Scott? Did he think I was going to leave him? I didn't have strong relationships at this church and certainly no one I would trust with this information. Scott didn't want to talk to any professionals. The mental health people didn't know he was going off these drugs. He wouldn't talk to his family. I had some friends I was talking to, but they didn't have any kind of expertise or advice to give me. They didn't know what to do any more than I did. I kind of knew what to do. I mean, I knew we needed help, but Scott wasn't cooperating. He was too traumatized and paranoid to trust anyone. So we went through all of this alone. I'm not sure how much information I had disclosed to my mother at this point, but I assured her that we were fine. And even with all this drama, I thought that we would eventually be fine. I thought that we had finally uncovered the root of Scott's issues, and so I thought maybe this was the beginning of freedom and healing for him, finally. I was optimistic, even if I was a little confused. Well, when he went off the meds again, it wasn't long before all hell broke loose for us. So much happened in a short amount of time during this period. So here are a few things that happened. At one point, I called the police to do something called a standby so that I could peacefully get some things for me and Jasmine and get away from Scott because he was unstable. He wasn't violent. He wasn't a threat to himself or others. I tried to get him to go voluntarily with the police to the ER, but he refused. That was perfectly within his legal right. So I left with Jasmine and went to my sister's and tried as best as I could to get my head together and sort all of this out. While I was gone through a series of events, someone in Scott's family finally got wind of the fact that Scott was off his medication. I'd asked a friend to check on him while we were gone. I told this friend to please not call anyone in his family because I honestly didn't know if Scott wouldn't go off on them if he saw them. But the friend couldn't get a hold of Scott and he wouldn't answer the door. He couldn't get a hold of me either, so he contacted Scott's family. So, someone in Scott's family finally went to our apartment, and he refused to answer the door, but they could hear noises from the inside that didn't sound good. The family member called the police. They gave them a brief history of Scott's diagnosis. I guess the police thought he was a threat to himself in that moment because they knocked down the door, and they took him away, and he ended up being involuntarily hospitalized. I was oblivious to this because at my sister's house, my phone wasn't working, which is why our friend couldn't get a hold of me. When I finally got a signal, my phone lit up with all kinds of calls and messages. I found out Scott was taken to a hospital, and I was trying to find out where he was. I was having a hard time getting information thanks to HIPAA, but I finally got someone to tell me where he wasn't, 
which helped me to figure out where he was. There weren't but so many places he could be. For the first time in my child's life, I left her overnight. For a couple of weeks, it turned out, while my mother and I made our way back to Tennessee to try to sort out the mess. At one point, I had to do a court hearing by video to petition to have Scott stay in the hospital longer than the five days they were going to keep him. I needed to have more time for him to get the meds in him. I won. Scott, of course, could no longer work, which meant we no longer had his income. He'd exhausted his short-term disability from the last episode, so he just had to quit. I had to drop out of the last symphony concert of the season. There was no way I could commit to that with all of this craziness going on. More money lost. Scott eventually got out of the hospital, but he was a long way from being well. In fact, in some ways, he seemed worse. Yes, he was on medication again, and he was taking it. I guess you could say that by now, we finally figured out that the medication was not an option. But whatever he was on, it was far from adequate. Mostly, he was a pain in the behind and out of touch with reality. But he was harmless. So, now I'm sitting here in Tennessee in early June of 2006. I have a two-year-old, a very ill husband, rent that I can't afford to pay, no one to offer any kind of emotional or spiritual support. I was at a complete loss. I called my mama. She said, come on, you know you can come here. As much as I didn't want to move back to my hometown, at this point, I literally saw no other choice. But how was I going to get there with all of our stuff? I couldn't afford a moving van. I couldn't fit all of our belongings in the van that we had. Well, I decided to just leave it. I left our furniture. I left the washer and dryer, our beds, our TV, the dishes, everything. I know it was tacky. But I left the landlord a note and told him he could sell the furniture and all the stuff to cover whatever we owed him. I purged our stuff, kept the important things like my violin and my journals and pictures and all kinds of other sentimental stuff like clothes and toys, and filled the van with as much as I could with the intention of just picking up and heading to my mother's house. At this point, if I were to be perfectly honest, Scott was getting on my nerves. Between the medication and the illness and all of this weird trauma swirling around him, his personality completely changed. He was a pain. I actually considered leaving his behind in Tennessee. Hey, if I did that, I'd have more room in the van. I could take more stuff. But if he came, then I'd have to make room for him and all his stuff too. He felt like baggage that I really did not want to carry into whatever it was I was stepping into next. But of course, I couldn't do that. He wasn't well. He wouldn't be able to sustain himself in that apartment, and he'd eventually end up on the streets. Or worse, he'd end up with his parents. He wasn't feeling too good about them at the moment. In the end, I realized that it would be safer for him and his family if he just came with us. Plus, bottom line, God wouldn't let me leave him. So, we loaded up the van with as much as we could. Poor Jasmine was in the back seat in her car seat, surrounded by all our junk, completely oblivious to everything that was going on. The van's AC wasn't working, but on the day we left, God blessed us with an unusually cool day. That drive through the mountains with the windows down and that cool air blowing on me, it was like a kiss from God himself. We stopped at my sister's house on the way to my mom's, and wouldn't you know it, the van gave out right there in my sister's driveway. So now we had no car on top of everything else. My mother came and got us, and off we went. So... The three of us are now holed up in my mother's small apartment. 
Jasmine is a very energetic toddler. I'm worn out and my husband isn't in his right mind. I have no idea what to do next, but at least I have my mother and familiarity and we're all safe. A friend of mine got wind that I was back in town. She told me about a job fair that the school system was having and thought maybe I should check it out. My degree isn't in education and I had zero public school teaching experience. I'd subbed a few times back in the day and some of the orchestra teachers had told my mom whenever they'd see her, tell Kimberly if she wants a job to come see us. In fact, when Scott and I came off the road and were trying to figure out where we'd live, my first thought was to move to my hometown and take them up on their offer to teach orchestra. But we'd ended up in Tennessee instead. I went to the job fair and eventually got connected with my ninth grade orchestra teacher. We had a great time catching up. Apparently, that was my job interview because when I got up, I had a job for the 2006-2007 school year. I couldn't believe it. North Carolina has a program where unlicensed teachers could get a provisional license and you have several years to clear it in order to become licensed. It got me around not having the education degree. My assigned school was my old high school. That was pretty cool. So I thought, more on that later. As great as it was to have a job, I had a problem. I needed a car. Orchestra teachers travel from school to school and I had no car. I went into CarMax certain that they would reject me based on my credit. I took in my hire papers to prove that I had a job or would have a job. And I left with a cute little used Dodge Stratus. Boom. Had a car. We couldn't live at my mother's forever. I needed somewhere to live. But I had a problem. I had no furniture. Not a stitch. Wherever we went, it had to be furnished. I searched and searched and found a fully furnished apartment. We moved out of my mother's apartment shortly after school started, and I got a couple of paychecks. Then there was Jasmine. I had no childcare. She was about to turn three. My mother's church had a preschool program. She was on the board, and although Jasmine was slightly younger than the other kids, and the class was actually full, they made a space for her. My mother would take her and pick her up, and on the days she didn't go to preschool, my mother took care of her. So, Jasmine didn't have to go to daycare. You know, I really believe that along the way in this walk of faith, God gives us these little breadcrumbs, things that let us know he's got us. He's taking care of things. He brought order to my chaos that summer of 2006 and the courage and grace to just keep on keeping on. Meanwhile, while all of that was going on, we had to get Scott set up with a new psychiatrist. We found one and he was thankfully able to get some medication with some prescription vouchers. So, he was on medication, and he was in treatment. But he wasn't himself. Something was definitely off with him. We didn't tell his family that we were leaving. I think someone might have called my mother at some point and left a message, but Scott didn't return the call. After going through all we went through, I still didn't know what to make of everything he told me. I believed him, but at the same time, I wasn't sure how much of it was actually true versus some kind of break with reality. Something wasn't right in his family, that much was clear. Exactly what, I didn't know, and he didn't seem interested in talking to anyone to explore this further. He was happy for me when I got the job, and he was happy for me when I got the car. There were times when I could see glimpses of the real Scott coming through, but a lot of times he was sullen and seemingly out of touch with reality. He was seeing the psychiatrist, taking the meds, but there was never any time taken to monitor him to see how the meds were working, or if they needed to be adjusted. I wasn't really going with him to the appointments. It was a free clinic type place, so I'm sure we probably weren't getting the best care. 
I still didn't really understand how to go about treating this illness and trying to deal with this trauma. Plus, I had a toddler, a new job that I had zero experience with that consumed so much of my mental energy. I had just essentially relocated abruptly. It was a lot. The job was super hard. You would think that teaching orchestra would be a breeze, right? Nope. My high school had changed a lot since I had graduated, and so had the new generation of kids. The previous orchestra teacher had been there six years with these kids since the fifth grade, and they were attached to him. He left them to take an assistant principal position, so they were mad at him. And guess who they took their anger out on? I was a fish out of water. I knew nothing about classroom management, and I had no idea how to use the grading system, how to make a lesson plan, nothing. They had some training for us provisionally licensed teachers, but it wasn't enough to prepare me for actually being in the classroom. And on top of all that, I had several other schools I had to travel to. I had two 90-minute high school classes and something like three elementary schools, and a toddler, and a very ill husband, and bills. By October, I was worn out. But as if things couldn't get any worse, while I was busy with all of this other stuff, somewhere along the line, Scott stopped taking the medication again. I don't remember how or why, but it was obvious that he was very, very sick. He was talking out of his head, saying all kinds of crazy things like how I had taken his daughter from him when I had gone to my sister's house, how I had left him in the hospital when I had petitioned for him to stay longer, and that he was going to divorce me and go to California. I'm not saying these things to make my husband look bad. Not at all. Yes, he was getting on my nerves, but I knew even then that he was very ill. It was actually quite heartbreaking. I knew that whoever this was, it was not the real Scott. You can know that on a practical level, but it's still hard. There was nothing I could do with him. He was out of touch with reality, manic, but harmless. So harmless, I couldn't do anything with him. The law makes it very clear that people are within their legal right to not be in their right mind as long as they aren't hurting anyone or hurting themselves. I was trapped. One day in late October, I'd finally reached my limit. I'd had enough. Scott kept talking about how he was going to divorce me and go to California. So I finally decided, you know what? You're right. You need to leave. I called his bluff. He wanted to leave me. I would help him make that happen. Somewhere in the middle of all this, I was teaching, parenting, and even living life a little bit. The nice thing about being back in North Carolina was being able to be back near my family. I got to spend time with my brother, and my mother bonded with Jasmine through taking care of her. We were closer to my sister and my sweet little paternal grandmother who was 99 years old. One Sunday, me, Jasmine, my mother, and maybe my brother, I don't remember, we all went to visit my grandmother. We would be gone most of the day, and Scott stayed home. He'd been rambling on about leaving and whatever, so I told him when I got back, he would indeed be leaving. He could get some stuff together that he wanted to take while we were gone, and I would happily take him anywhere he wanted to go. Hospital? Homeless shelter? Shoot, I was even ready to buy him a bus ticket to California. But he was going to have to go. So off to my grandmother's we went for the day. When we came back that night, it was like Scott hadn't even moved. Either he forgot that I told him he had to go, or he didn't believe I would do it. But I held my ground. I took his house key... I gave him his little fanny pack with his ID, made sure he had his phone, offered him a jacket, but I don't think he took it. 
My mother and brother knew that I was going to have this little showdown with Scott, so they waited out in the parking lot of our complex with the car with Jasmine while I went inside, just in case. I opened our front door to go out, and I told Scott to wait a minute because I must have left my purse in the car or something because my intention was to give him some money. I wasn't going to leave him completely high and dry. I thought he was going to come with me. So we walked out the door, and I went right to go to the car, and he went left and walked off into the night. Just like that. He was gone. He disappeared. I remember it was Sunday, October twenty-second, two 2006. I wouldn't see Scott again until October 2007. Thanks for listening to this episode. That was pretty intense reliving all of that. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. In the next episode, I'll tell you all about that first year that Scott was gone. Obviously, he didn't stay gone, and there's definitely a story behind that. But that was one of the hardest seasons of my life. Ironically, it was one of the sweetest seasons in my relationship with the Lord. He was with me and Jasmine at every single step. And he was with Scott, too. So come back next week, and you'll hear how. In the meantime, there's a few other places where you can check out more of our story. There are posts on my blog called Trauma, Mental Illness, and Family Secrets, as well as a couple of posts about the two times Scott left. Don't forget to check out my fellow warrior wives, the Mental Health Marriage Podcast, and the I Married Bipolar Clubhouse group, along with the episodes I was part of. And... Be sure to check out the bonus content. Basically, it's almost like a whole other podcast. I'll leave some information in the show notes on how you can subscribe, as well as information about all of the other places I mentioned. Finally, if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, or if you want to give me some feedback, ask questions, or leave a comment, you can email me at simpkinsfamily3 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. You can find out more information about us along with some helpful resources by visiting my website at www.simpkinsfamilychronicles.com. Be sure to subscribe to my email list for updates and follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Simpkins Family Chronicles. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, the adventure continues.